pause when the clock has started. This is 20 minutes. You'll never, 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 ever get back. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> Hey, welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. My name is Doug Prezak, and you just heard Tony from Chile. <laughs> He's auditioning for a play, I believe, and that was a very dramatic reading. <laughs> I appreciate it, Tony. Hey, welcome to the show, and uh, you know what? Let's start like we usually do, saying our greetings to different uh, cities who I don't think I've seen pop up on my uh, my stats list recently. Uh, Zimmerman, Minnesota. I know I've never seen Zimmerman, Minnesota on my list, so welcome to you. Honolulu, Hawaii, and there was one that was listed as Wakefield, Wakefield. I don't know if that's Wakefield, Massachusetts, or Wakefield, England. So I'm just going to say hello to both of you, <laughs> wherever you are. And another new name I haven't recognized. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce this one. I believe it's Fulpmes, 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 F-U-L-P-M-E-S, in Tyrol, in Austria. In case you're wondering, it's located on the sunny side of the Stubaichil Valley and it's known as the Village of Smithy. <laughs> well, welcome to Full Pulp Mies, whoever is listening there. So thanks to those fine folks and everybody else who downloaded episode 89 and heard all about my car and the snake. <laughs> I'm still kind of freaked out about reliving that story. You know, as you heard also uh, last week, the Director of States and Territory Acquisitions, Catherine, she nailed down Montana. So now I have a pin in every state in the U.S. Now, Catherine, uh, your next challenge may be a little bit more widespread. I'm trying to figure out what, what to do next. Now, I checked the stats and this podcast has now been downloaded in 70, 70, 70 different countries and 968 different cities. So I'm going to go check the global map and see what other country needs to give up 20 minutes. <laughs> I'll let you know. Stay tuned. Okay, on with the show. Now, you know how this goes. Each week I see something or hear something and usually it causes me to wonder. I get a topic that I think you and I both need to know more about. So I do some research because I don't want you to have to worry about it, you know? So I, I do it for you. And then I record the show and uh, they clock in somewhere around 20 minutes. But a lot of times the topic just won't justify 20 minutes. Hell, they don't even justify 10 minutes sometimes. I did a, a twofer episode back in August of 2020. You may recall it, Clowns and Weeds. Neither had anything to do with each other, but they were only about worth 10 minutes each. So that was that episode. But then there are some topics that really only deserve one or two minutes. And my monitor is covered with a yellow sticky notes with unworthy topics I've written down. So I pulled some of those off and decided to do 20-minute topics. Not 20-minute topics. 20-minute topics, you know, give or take a minute or two. It was a lot of research, but my friends, you are worth it. And just in case you might doze off, you're going to hear this between each topic. Don't be startled. All right, here we go. Okay, we're going to start off with a uh, apropos topic. It's minute stakes. Have you ever heard of those things? They were part of my childhood, let me tell you. The term minute steak is a generic phrase that covers pretty much any very thin cut of beef, and it gets its name from how quickly it cooks. Different butchers tend to have you know different slight variations of exactly what this cut is. In most cases, it's usually made up of a round steak or sirloin, but just about any boneless beef can be used. Now, minute steaks are usually classified more by their shape and size than by where they come from on the animal. As a result, butchers often take some liberties when it comes to preparing them. So as long as they're boneless and thin, 
they can typically be sold under the minute steak name. Now, sometimes, just sometimes, butchers will cut the meat very thinly to begin with, but it's also common to find steaks that have been pounded down. Meat prepared this way is often sold as cube steak. Now, that comes from the square-shaped indentations that most commercial tenderizers leave behind. Okay, so to see how that went, you know, that uh, I don't want to bore you with 19 more minutes worth of minute steak information. So we just cut, cut the chase, knock it out in a minute, and we'll move on to the next one. And here it is, silly string. Come on now, everybody has sprayed a can of silly string, right? Well, how did that come to be? The invention of the original silly string was quite accidental. In 1972, a patent was issued to the inventor named Leonard A. Fish and a chemist named Robert P. Cox. The patent was for foamable resinous composition. The partners initially wanted to create a can of aerosol that would be able to spray on broken or sprained leg or arm to use as an instant cast. During nozzle testing, fish came upon one that shot the string about 30 feet across the room, and the toy was born. <laughs> I'm not certain that Robert Cox appreciated getting sprayed with foam. But anyway, after altering the formula to be less sticky and adding some colors, the pair decided to market their product. Now, because neither of them knew how to sell toys, they made an appointment with the Whammo Company in California. During that meeting, Fish sprayed the can all over the person he was meeting with and all over his office. Excellent introduction. For obvious reasons, the person became very upset and asked him to leave the premises. Well, one day later, Fish received a telegram from the same individual who had kicked him out of his office, asking him to immediately send 24 cans of the stuff for market test. The Whammo guy explained that after he had finished cleaning up his office, the two owners of Whammo came back in to talk to him, and one of them noticed a piece of string that was still in the lampshade. Excellent cleaning up there, buddy. He explained where the string came from, and the owners quickly asked him to send samples over for market test. Two weeks later, not one, two weeks later, Whammo signed a contract with Fish and Cox to license the product now known as Silly String. Here's an interesting little side note. Silly String and similar products have been used by the military to detect tripwires for explosive booby traps. The string is sprayed over the suspected area, and if the string falls to the ground, well, there's no tripwires around. But if the Silly String is hanging there like a clothesline, probably want to go a different direction. Okay, everybody, let's head out to the schoolyard and play some hopscotch. Now, any school kid since school kids were invented has played hopscotch. You know the game, the little pattern, usually incredibly uneven rectangles drawn on the ground with chalk. Well, incidentally, in case you didn't know this, those connected rectangles are officially known as a court, as in a hopscotch court. <laughs> you toss a small object, which is officially known as a lagger, onto the court, and then hop and jump all over the spaces to pick up whatever you tossed. Hopscotch is the predecessor of seeded hopscotch board games such as Go, Chess, and Checkers. I don't think I'd buy that one. Something may be off on that research. <laughs> so anyway, why is it called hopscotch, you say? Well, the word scotch in hopscotch means an incised line or a scratched line. You know, the ones you hop over. Have you ever used a stapler? <laughs> what a stupid opening line. Everybody's used a stapler at least once, and most likely everybody owns a stapler. Do you? Come on, you can admit it. It's okay. Own it. 
Well, people have been attaching stacks of paper together forever. Uh, before staplers and staples were invented, people would glue or sew their pages together. <laughs> yeah, that's not tedious, is it? In 1866, a bendable paper fastener, you know, a staple, was created by a guy named George McGill. Now, his invention of a unit that would push the fasteners into the paper was licensed in 1867. The problem was that the stapler had to be reloaded quite often, so this became quite tedious. Well, an even simpler reloading design came about in 1937. That is like 70 years. People were stuffing in staples one at a time for 70 years. Man. Well, Jack Linsky, he created a design that would allow users to simply open the top of the machine and insert a row of staples. Now, have you ever heard of Bostitch? You've seen the, you've seen the, come on, I know you have. You've seen it on the, on the stapler. You've seen it on the box of staples. Bostitch. Well, a new way to bind books together was invented in 1896. Thomas Briggs created what would later become known as the wire stitcher, binding books using wire. He later founded the, are you ready for it? The Boston Wire Stitcher Company. Don't get ahead of me. The Boston Wire Stitcher Company. Three years later, and if you shorten the company name, he created the Boss Stitch Model A Stapler. Boss Stitch. Okay, this was about the time where I would take a break. Okay, I won't. We'll just keep going. Here's the uh, next topic that isn't worth more than a couple of minutes. <laughs> As most of these have been so far, right? Wouldn't you agree? If I had taken any one of these and talked for 20 minutes, you would have tuned me out a long time ago. Wait a minute. Maybe you already have. <laughs> what have I done? All right, let's keep going. Pigs in a blanket. <laughs> Why are they pigs? Why are they in a blanket? Well, for you don't know what those are, they're usually hot dogs that are cut in half or in thirds, then wrapped in some kind of croissant dough or biscuit dough and then baked. Most people, including this guy talking right now, would tell you they think that pigs in a blanket date back to, oh, the 1950s or 60s. However, they actually date back to the 1600s. Back then, field workers would wrap up some meat in dough that they could eat for lunch. So old-timey pigs in a blanket. The first time a recipe for pigs in a blanket showed up in a cookbook was the Betty Crocker cookbook published in 1957. Some people claim they saw it before the cookbook was released, but no other documentation has been found. Pillsbury actually released a product in the 1970s that were pre-rolled pigs in a blanket that just required baking. Sadly, the product didn't do so well because many people didn't understand why the easy dish needed to be made even easier. Now, for those of you curious about the name, there is no real origin of the name other than the meat looked like little pigs wrapped up in a dough blanket. <laughs> I swear, I don't know what kind of pigs those people look at, but... I don't, I don't see pigs sleeping in a blanket when I look at those things. Next up, Lincoln Logs. Lincoln Logs are an American children's toy consisting of square-notched miniature lightweight logs that are used to build small forts and buildings. Who hasn't played with Lincoln Logs? They were invented around 1916 by John Lloyd Wright. Now, if that name sounds familiar... 
He's the second son of the well-known architect Frank Lloyd Wright. John Lloyd Wright was working with his father in Japan. The mold for the toy was based on the architecture of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, co-designed by the inventor's father. Now, the foundation of the hotel was designed with interlocking log beams, which made the structure earthquake-proof. When John returned to the U.S., he created the Red Square Toy Company. Not any, nothing to do with Russia and the Red Square there. The Red Square was Frank Lloyd Wright's logo on his architecture. He marketed the toy in 1918. Soon after that, he changed the name to J.L. Wright Manufacturing. The original Lincoln log set came with instructions on how to build Abraham Lincoln's cabin and others. Lincoln logs are believed to be the first toy to be marketed to both boys and girls and appeal to a simple type of creativity. The toy sets were originally made of redwood with varying colors of roof pieces. In the 1970s, the company introduced sets made entirely of plastic. That's right, a terrible idea. So soon, they reverted back to real wood. In 1999, Lincoln Logs and John Lloyd Wright were entered into the National Toy Hall of Fame. I love this next topic. It's Neckos. <laughs> Anybody remember Neckos? Well, if you don't know, Necco wafers are a sugar-based candy sold in rolls of variously flavored thin discs. They were lemon, which were the yellow ones, lime, the green ones, orange, <laughs> the orange ones, clove, those are the purple ones. I kind of really like those. Cinnamon, the white ones. I love the cinnamon ones. Wintergreen, uh, those were the pink ones. I love those because it was like eating chewable Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> licorice, black ones, no. I've said it before. I'll say it again. No to licorice ever. Nobody should ever have licorice ever. It should be banned from the universe. And chocolate, those are the brown ones. You didn't get those very often, but when you did, it was a good roll of Neckos right there. Necco wafers date back to 1847. You see, there was this English immigrant named Oliver Chase, and he invented a lozenge cutting machine with which he could produce the wafers. Now, at the time of the Civil War, these were called hub wafers and were carried by the Union soldiers. By 1901, Chase and Company merged with two other companies to incorporate the New England Confectionery Company, or N-E-C-C-O, NECO, which operated near Boston, Massachusetts. By 1912, the wafers were being advertised as NECO wafers, a name they still carry to this day. During World War II, the United States government actually ordered NECO to produce its wafers for soldiers overseas. As a result of this action, Neko saw its sales of the wafers peak. Upon returning home, many of the former soldiers became faithful customers who continued to buy the wafers. Unfortunately, production of the candy was suspended in July of 2018 when Neko went into bankruptcy. Aww. But it returned in May of 2020 after the purchase of the brand and production equipment by the Spangler Candy Company. So go get some Neckos and celebrate. And I hope you get a brown one. All right, just two stories left. Are you excited? <laughs> Are you glad it's going to be over? Tiddlywinks. Ever played Tiddlywinks? Hasn't, hasn't everybody? But if you haven't, it's a game that's played on a flat felt mat with sets of small discs that are called winks. <laughs> that's right. 
Those little round things, those are called winks. In the middle of the mat is a, a pot or a cup, which is the target. And you have a squidger. That's another plastic disc. It's the thing you snap the uh, the wink with. <laughs> Sounds so stupid. And uh, see, uh, you shoot the wink into, uh, the, into the air by flicking the, the squidger on the edge of the wink. And it causes it to flip up in the air and hopefully go in the target. <laughs> it doesn't get much simpler than that. Now, the objective of the game is to score points by sending your own wink into the pot. The defensive objective of the game is to prevent your opponents from potting their winks by squapping them. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you pot their winks by squapping them. That's when you shoot your wink on top of one of the opponent's winks. The game began as a parlor game in Victorian England. Uh, a bank clerk named Joseph Fincher filed the original patent application for the game in 1888 and applied for the trademark Tiddlywinks in 1889. However, competition was quite fierce, and for several years, starting in 1888, other game publishers came out with their own versions of the game, including the names of Spoof, Flipperty Flop, <laughs> Jumpkins, Golfette, Flutter, and many others. It became one of the most popular crazes during the 1890s, played by adults and children alike. Tiddlywinks is sometimes considered a simple-minded, frivolous children's game rather than a sophisticated strategic game. However, you knew there was a however. The modern <laughs> competitive game of Tiddlywinks made a strong comeback in 1955 when the collegiate group set in and they had more complex rules and consistent set of high-grade equipment. By the way, you know what the winks are. Where's the tiddlies come from? Well, tiddlies are the points calculated when determining the finishing placement of the winkers in a tiddlywinks game. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You've got tiddlies and winkers and squapping and squidgers. <laughs> this sounds like a Harry Potter thing, doesn't it? And lastly, let's talk baseballs. No, not the game, the ball. The ball is made of a rubber or cork center wrapped in yarn and covered with white natural horsehide or cowhide or synthetic leather. It's nine to nine and a quarter inches in circumference and just slightly under three inches in diameter. It's bound together by 108 hand woven stitches through the cowhide leather. Now, baseballs weren't always like that. In the mid-1800s, there was a great variety in size, shape, and weight, and manufacturing of baseballs. Early baseballs had a rubber core made from old, melted shoes wrapped in yarn and leather. Fish eyes were also used as cores in some places. In 1876, the National League was created, and standard rules and regulations were put into place. A well-known baseball pitcher named A.G. Spaulding happened to make his own balls and he convinced the National League to adopt his ball as the official baseball for the National League. It remained that way for a century. Then in 1976, Major League Baseball ended its relationship with Spaulding and switched to Rawlings, which still provides the balls for Major League Baseball today. <music> 
Well, that was rousing, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, man, it's time to end the show. Did we learn anything today? I don't think we did. But more importantly, I got a whole bunch of yellow sticky notes off my monitor. So that is going to wrap up this episode number 90. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next time on 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. <laughs>